Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Once again, I am fortunate to have two guests for today's episode and am pleased to welcome Mary Burnham and Sarah Grant from Murphy, Burnham & Buttrick, or MBB, Architects in New York City. Mary Burnham, FAIA, is a founding partner of MBB Architects, a women-owned firm driven by a shared mission to enrich people's lives through design and to shape a sustainable future. MBB has been consistently recognized for award-winning work, including a rich portfolio of educational, cultural, civic, and residential architecture. Mary serves as a member of the Board of Directors of the Architectural League, Board of Trustees of the American Academy of Rome, and Founding Board Chair of the Lighthouse Works, a not-for-profit artist residency program. Sarah Grant, AIA, Lead AP, ALEP, is a partner at MBB. Sarah has been designing and advancing equitable, healthy, and sustainable environments that empower diverse communities for 20 years. Sarah is a passionate architect, researcher, and planner who leads a collaborative practice around a shared vision of inclusive design, civic engagement, and rigorous research-driven decision-making. The project we are going to chat about today is the Park Avenue Synagogue in Manhattan. To meet the growing needs of one of the largest Jewish congregations in North America, MBB crafted a comprehensive plan for the Park Avenue Synagogue that transformed it from a place focused on worship into an educational and community hub. The plan enlarged the physical campus, providing flexible facilities for a range of activities for 1,700 families. It meets the client's goals of promoting community, supporting its members' spiritual development, 
and highlighting the synagogue's culture, art collections, and rich history. A few unique elements of the project are the Minion Chapel, created for daily prayer in an intimate setting, which acts as a stunning new sculptural object in the lobby and accommodates 36 people, the flexible chapel created for a wide range of gatherings, including concerts, celebrations, and prayer, is a new double-height space with flexibility built into every detail and can accommodate 235 people, and the Gottlieb Armature, incorporating historic stained-glass windows by mid-century American artist Adolf Gottlieb, connects the lower-level event space to the lobby and street through color and light and accommodates 870 people. You can see additional project details on the podcast homepage at rcat.com slash podcast. Mary and Sarah, we are so honored to have you here today with us on Detailed. How are you today? Uh, Just great. Thanks so much. I hear it's cold. Sarah, how about you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. Delighted to be here today. Um, Well, we are delighted to have you. Uh, This project is a pretty cool project, so I'm excited to talk about it. What elements attract you to a particular project that make you want to take that project? Well, I'll start out to say that um, this is Mary. I think in all the projects that we do, particularly clients like this one uh, with Park Avenue Synagogue, uh, we're very interested in sort of the cultural and cultural aspect of the client. And we love doing projects that are sort of mission driven, whether it's a ground up building or a adaptive reuse or whatever it may be. But our projects have ranged sort of from a Tibetan library to a Montessori school or here in New York City, this project for a synagogue. So those are projects that really, really interest and excite us in our work. What about you, Sarah? What are the elements that attract you to a project? Part of it is definitely that mission-driven piece. And really, what's so attractive about that is the opportunity for design, for the power of design to really enhance and advance their mission. I think the other piece that we're always looking for is clients who are interested in really going through a good process with us because part of what allows for really successful architecture is a very inclusive and open dialogue. And that allows for this type of decision-making to happen so that we can make architecture to advance mission. Let's start with the story, the background, the history of the Park Avenue Synagogue and what led to this effort, because there's a lot of things going on in this building. They are a growing and vibrant synagogue, and they had grown incrementally over time. First, they built a sanctuary in 1927, and then they built a 1954 synagogue house. Then they expanded that again in 1980. So part of what they needed, part of our work with them was uh, certainly for more space, but really for more functional space, because As often happens with these institutions that grow over time, the the space becomes very, very fragmented. And so really a lot of our work was focused on creating a cohesive plan for them and then a cohesive, easy to navigate, easy to use campus. Yeah, I think we see that in so many of our clients where 
you often can't really undo where you are unless you take a really broad look at what you have and to make this amount of space really work for them in a way that functions, just works for them. Uh, I think that they had gotten to a place where nothing really worked. And in our analysis and programming with them, we found out that they really didn't have the right collection of spaces to do what they needed to do. And this was a real opportunity. It was a generational opportunity. The synagogue has a very, as, as Sarah said, it's sort of a growing and strong group. And I think they realized that, you know, they really need to do something big. It wasn't going to be an incremental change. It had to be a start from scratch kind of moment. I know that just a handful of pictures I've looked at only represent a small portion of the project, but I see some really incredible and beautiful spaces. Tell me what you've done here and what kind of spaces you've created. You enter off Madison Avenue and 87th Street, you know, a very bustling sort of part of New York City, and you enter the building through a sort of compressed lobby space, two sets of doors, and you, you sort of go through what is essentially a security sequence. And then beyond, when you enter the synagogue, you are in this soaring, double-height, beautiful lobby space that has these tall, big windows on one side of the space, this ceiling that is designed in the shape of sort of a V shape. So it leads you down this long, tall space. And that really sets up a very gracious entrance to the sanctuary, which is actually the adjacent building. So the 1927 sanctuary is still intact, but this is really your new entrance into it. And it sets up this beautiful, very gracious entrance to these doors that have this metal grate above the doors that we designed to echo some of the ornamentation in the sanctuary itself. You go through those doors and that gets you to the sanctuary, which is sort of the main prayer space on the campus. So that lobby space also has a very gracious large stair that can bring you downstairs. And below we have a large event space for up to a thousand people. So it's very big. There's a very logical and natural sequence down into the event space, which is obviously used all the time for all sorts of events and uh, celebrations. And within that tall double-height lobby, there's also seating and a long bench so that people can use it just to um, sit and wait or just be there or gather. When you come in the door, if you go to the right, there's a whole nother lobby which has a lounge with sort of lounge seating and it's very comfortable. There's a coffee station, you can have coffee. So that is also another gathering space, sort of informal gathering space. And that side of the lobby connects you with a small prayer space that is called the Minion Chapel. And the Minion Chapel is used for daily morning prayer, typically by a small number of people. It's an object within the space that is designed as sort of like a shape of a horseshoe crab. And you can circulate all the way around it. So it's so, sort of like this jewel object in the space that also orients you to the circulation. So there's the elevator bank and a beautiful glass light-filled stair that then you circulate up through the building within. So the lobby really orients you to where you need to go within the building. And I'd say materially, we set up the language that we use throughout the building, which includes mostly light stone surfaces on the floor and some of the walls. 
natural wood on the ceilings typically, and then some plaster walls or some softening walls, lots of glass, lots of daylight, lots of sort of open, warm, inviting spaces. That's really was the sort of feel that we were after to make this a space that works for their multi-generational community from preschoolers to the parents, to the grandparents, to the large number of people who work here every day, including administrators, educators, and the clergy. So the space is welcoming to everybody. It's really a very contemporary space, meant to be welcoming. It's very light-filled and gracious. That really, you think of Judaism, you know, and it is this ancient religion, but a, a big part of why this community is so vibrant and so wonderful is that they have been very intentional in supporting young families and really being relevant to the lives of young families. And so the architecture was very intentionally in support of that. So including these kind of historic motifs and historic artwork, but within this very contemporary light-filled environment. What were some of your design challenges? Because you've got this building that's come in pieces and parts over the years. And I know what it's like to work on a, on a building like that. What were some of your design challenges to take what was there and make that happen within this existing building that happened in different phases over the years? One of the biggest challenges was that in the 1950s, buildings were typically constructed with a very low floor-to-floor height. So in this case, we were looking at existing floor-to-floor heights averaging around 10 feet. Wow. When the 1980s building was added as an addition, they matched those 10-foot floor-to-floor heights. So now you end up with these really big floor plates and these really compressed spaces. And as we described, a big part of our work was trying to create big, gracious community spaces. So what we did was we went through a really careful programming exercise with all of the different constituents, all the different stakeholders, and really mapped out in a very precise way how much space they needed for different activities over the course of the day. And that really careful programming exercise allowed us to actually remove square footage from the building. So actually remove part of the floor plates in order to create these double height spaces like what you see in the lobby and like what you see in that new third floor chapel. Throughout the rest of the spaces, we very carefully coordinated every piece of mechanical equipment, every duct, every, you know, every little bit of stuff that has to go up into those ceilings to get every inch of ceiling height that we possibly could. We worked with a liturgical consultant, Amy Reichert, who um, helped us design all the arcs and the bimas and things that really are required for the worship spaces in particular. But also we moved that very intentional program of artwork that could relate the new to the old. So we often use these motifs that came from either a text that was very important or a motif that is in the original sanctuary and then used it in the new part of the building so that the whole campus felt like one. One of the opportunities we had was to repurpose a whole set of these stained glass windows that were done by Adolf Gottlieb, an American 20th century 
artist who had done these for the 1954 edition. And what we did was really use them throughout the building as artworks. And so we created these armatures for them and lit them so that they really sing. And each one of them has a very specific symbolic importance to text. And so placing them properly and making them relevant to the architecture was part of our design challenge as well to really weave this history into the building itself in a very intentional way. Sometimes people kind of forget when you have a building with this much history, you can't lose that. It's an emotional piece of the building. And I think buildings are are and should be an emotional experience in some way. I'm a big marshmallow, so everything for me is an emotional experience. But I love how you brought that in and kept pieces of you know that. I'm, I'm sure those mean a lot to a lot of people. Um, you know, getting down to starting to draw some of these spaces. What was the most difficult to detail on this building? I'm sure that I'm there sure a there's a of, few. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In this case, there were quite a few challenges. But if we focus just on the Minion Chapel, which, as I said, is sort of this jewel within the lobby, there were several challenges there. Um, and one of them is that the division between the 1954 building and the 1980 building, because they were originally two separate structures, there's actually a joint between the two previous buildings. And to um, comply with current earthquake codes, we actually had to build an actual expansion joint that runs through the space, but we had to hide it. <laughs> so this expansion joint runs right through the Minion Chapel. It runs right through that double height lobby. And detailing that in a way that you don't perceive it was really, really tricky. And in the design of the ceiling of the Minion Chapel, we actually created this sort of cross pattern. And part of that was to hide that joint. So we sort of added something to make it more symmetrical so that the joint wasn't this weird off angle thing. We created another weird off angle thing that could counter that. And so it looks normal, but there was so much thinking that went behind how to trace that expansion joint all the way through all the materials, every connection of all those materials and to make it unperceivable. So I'd say that that was a very, very, very tricky thing on top of the fact that we had these low ceilings, that everything had to be done with these incredibly tight tolerances. And that was a challenge throughout the project. Also on the Minion Chapel, it appears as this beautiful skin, but really we used the thickness of that skin to incorporate two different column grids and vertical mechanical chases. And so there's a, a lot of very precise geometry into the placement of that skin. And then the skin itself is both curved and then also tapered. And it has this kind of historic patterning on it. And so in order to actually get that panelization and patterning to read properly, the pattern itself had to be very precisely mapped onto those panels so that it all just reads as very beautiful and continuous, but there's actually you know, a great deal of, of modeling and prototyping and, and work with a, a specialty fabricator called Situ that went into that very special element. 
What would you say design or construction was the most complex part of this project? And maybe you just answered that in some of these things that were difficult to detail, but what was the most complex thing on this project? The third floor chapel was also another one of those things that required a a great deal of design thinking. This building did not have any spare structural capacity. It has kind of an unusual structural system where the the second floor actually has these full floor trusses, and then the first floor is hung from the second floor to allow for that large column-free space on the lower level. But what it meant for that third floor chapel is that when we removed that fourth floor floor plate, the weight of that removed slab actually allowed for more people to gather in that third floor space. So that sort of structural piece was very important. And then also just building in all of the flexibility that that third floor space would need, that any big space for an institution like this needs. So including the, you know, we have a huge movable partition and the bima, the altar area is actually demountable. And you see in the photographs, all of these, they look almost like They're these very beautiful prayer chairs by a furniture company called Luke Hughes. And those actually are all stacking chairs that can come out of there. So just really making that space absolutely as flexible as possible. We always know the importance of flexibility, but then right as this building was opening soon after that, the pandemic happened, right, or started. Oh, oh and, that, right. <laughs> and we never, never could have predicted. And all of a sudden, you know, we had built all of this flexibility into the space and it allowed them to very quickly pivot and basically make a production studio out of this chapel for when they were simulcasting services rather than being able to, to gather in person. So that flexibility and the amount of thinking and work that really went into making a a truly flexible space really paid off in unforeseen ways. You've got a lot of really cool, unique things going on in this building with materials and how you decided to use them. Talk to me a little bit about some of the materials you use throughout, why you use them and what, what you were accomplishing. I'll start by talking a little bit about the ceiling in the lower level event space. As I said, it's it's a very large space for up to a thousand people. It also can be divisioned into three separate spaces. There's a double height slot at one end with the armature of Gottlieb window artwork moving from that level up through the lobby. So it's a quite dramatic um, space as well. And the lower level is this continuously open space under all three of those buildings. The ceiling height wasn't continuously the same. And in some places, it wasn't very lofty. So we weren't going to have this sense of openness that we wanted if we had pendant lights hanging down into the space. So we decided to make the ceiling into a plane that is sort of a folded plane where the light fixture is really built into, designed into the ceiling itself. And so what we did was thought about the acoustics of the space and knowing that we really wanted to have 
material on the ceiling that was also quite absorptive. So we were starting out with the assumption that we would be the fabric or a, some sort of acoustic material. And we worked with a company called Arctura, who does these sort of sculptural ceiling systems. And we created with them this folded acoustic panel, essentially, that has this diagonal running through it. And so the whole ceiling sort of moves like a way through the space, connecting the whole thing. And along those diagonals, we built in these little strips of light. We have these little points of light and little strips of light. So it looks a little bit like stars and then these, these sort of scattered strips of light in a very unusual pattern. So the whole ceiling has this lovely feeling of a light plane that also gives you shadow and it's not flat. So it, it has this lovely kind of sculptural aspect to it. And those little strips of light were these tiny little LED strips. I mean, LED lighting has come so far the last even 10 years. Um, it was a very cool little fixture that just plugged in and they worked really brilliantly. Um, and they could just be slotted into these folded planes. And so that was sort of a Turning the whole ceiling into the light fixture was sort of our approach, and I think it gives the space a lot of character. So that that was really partnership, I would say, with Arctura. We worked with them to prototype it. We sort of started with one of their systems and tweaked it till we got to where we needed to be. We worked with a lighting designer to come up with the light fixtures that then would slot in. So it was all very highly coordinated, also with the mechanical systems that had to all run up there as well. And so that was a that was a really interesting collaboration with Arctura. And then the ceiling up in the third floor chapel was articulated in a couple different geometries. And in that case, we also wanted to have a fairly acoustically sophisticated ceiling so that we have a hearing loop in that space and we have a curtain along the window wall that can be drawn. So there are a lot of sort of absorptive pieces of the space to make it a sort of a better acoustic. And there we use it sort of a slatted wood ceiling, a little bit more typical. Originally was a, a product from Decoustics. And we also used for some of the wall surfaces, these micro-perfed wood panels, again, to add absorptive material to the space. Much of that ended up being built that was another set of mill workers and vendors that we coordinated with really to get these these different things to match and to work and to be where they needed to be. The glass was also an incredibly important piece on this project, including low iron graded glass, yet that very classy, very welcoming stair enclosure. The other big glass piece was we replaced all of the windows in the building, enlarged some of the windows, and you know, obviously we wanted to improve the thermal performance, but the windows were also brown. They had you know, 1980s brown glass in them when we started work on the building, and it really limited the amount of daylight that was coming in and gave everything inside a very dreary feel. So getting a very you know, high performance, but visibly very transparent window in there to really enhance the connection to the neighborhood and let in lots and lots of daylight. That was another, you know, really important material. So construction, 
were there any surprises or challenges that came up during construction that forced you to pivot? The project actually had a fairly aggressive schedule for a project of this scope and with this detailed of finishes and and there were continuously surprises. And so what that really required is that we were on site almost daily and working very collaboratively with the construction manager. So there was no like single pivotal moment, but there was more this series of ongoing, you know, okay, what did you find today? Okay, what, you know, so it was a, a good collaboration, I would say, in terms of meeting those very real deadlines. So, you know, there was a very real need for the community to be in for the high holidays. That's a hard stop. Absolute hard stop. (laughs) (laughs) Every inch of the building, you know, during the month of September. And then also there's a preschool on the fifth floor, fifth and sixth floor of a preschool. And so we completely renovated that as well. And they moved out for one year, but they had to get back in uh, in time to start school that fall. So there was some real pressures on the schedule that, you know, there was no no alternative but to get it done. How long was construction? It was a little bit less than 18 months. One of the challenges was that they needed to retain use of the sanctuary, their main sanctuary, throughout that time. So there's kind of a quiet season in the summer, but then, you know, the construction crew would get a call, oh, we have to have a funeral tomorrow in the main sanctuary. You know, you can no work for these hours. We had to provide bathrooms for the sanctuary on a temporary basis that moved around to different parts of the construction site. And also we had temporary egress out of the sanctuary because the egress through our building gives a sort of legalized exit, but the sanctuary itself has old-fashioned egress with steps and everything is completely not handicap accessible. So we had to create ramps and have all this sort of special accommodation for just the sanctuary to operate as its own building for those months. I I have to say I'm insanely impressed. You know, people think that new buildings are hard. New buildings are not hard. What's hard is when you have to touch anything that's already there and then turn it into something else. But the scale that you did this in the amount of time you did it in is seriously, that's incredible. Um, what disciplines were really at the forefront with you on this project that really were, you know, game changers with helping you tackle some of these technical challenges? You know, even in a double height space, the real estate between a ceiling and a structural slab is so valuable to the plumbers, the electricians, the acoustic people, the uh, lighting designers, everybody wants that space to do run their ducts. And we were like, no, you cannot run your ducts there. Everybody has to work together. You get this route, you get this route. But, you know, getting everybody to think that way is always a challenge. You really need good mechanical engineers and construction engineers to help you sort through all that and to coordinate everything so that it uh, you don't have too many surprises on site when everybody's there trying to get their equipment in and you know you've got to make sure that everybody has the the space they need but yet it has to work with the architecture and i again i think we had so such a limiting amount of space 
particularly in the ceilings and such a program that needed every square foot that we could provide. So it wasn't like we could just have these huge mechanical rooms either. So it was very, very carefully designed for a very tight urban space to accommodate all of that. The other piece of that is that whenever we undertake an adaptive reuse project, we're always looking at modernizing and making as sustainable as possible the mechanical systems, looking forward to the next generation and just how critical the sustainability of these older buildings is. So in that sense, you know, getting all of these mechanical systems through these very tight spaces is a challenge, but is just incredibly important. So I understand that this project was actually kind of a phase two of your work with the synagogue, with your first phase being the nearby Lifelong Learning Center. I'm curious, having completed two phases of work for this client, can you tell me about some of your lessons learned from your first phase that you brought to the second phase to make the second phase go even better? One thing that we were very conscious of was making sure that these two projects really felt like one project. So we really scrutinized all the materials that we used on the floors, um, all the types of woods that we used, even sort of bringing some of those Gottlieb artworks to that other site and sort of creating a, a vocabulary for what the stair would look like. And that could be uh, referenced again in the second project. So we really designed them almost like one project with one set of materials, even though they have different, you know, the architecture is different. The, uh, I think you walk into both of them and sort of feel like you're at Park Avenue Synagogue. So I think we were very conscious of sort of creating a, a materials vocabulary that would really infiltrate every space, uh, both sides of the campus. Yeah, we talked a little before about this very compressed construction schedule for the Park Avenue project. Part of what made that possible was that we did have the opportunity to prototype some of these things at the Lifelong Learning Center. So the design intent was always that the stairs feel very similar, but we discovered in our work at 89th Street at the first project that the painted risers that we were designing just weren't going to work for them, that you know, it, it was going to end up not being easy enough for them to maintain. So we knew at 87th Street, for example, that we needed a porcelain tread that was going to wrap and have the riser as part of the system as, as just one small example. But also those Gottlieb light boxes, you know, we went through a whole prototyping process to test exactly how far the light needed to be back and which light was the best light to get this beautiful glow that you see. And we were able to do all of that as part of the first project and then really just hit the ground running when we started the Park Avenue project. So you are a women-owned business, which when I read that, I was like, yes, I want this one. You know, I know during the course of my career, I started, I'm not going to say when I started, but I started a long time ago and we've come a long way, but we're certainly not, not there yet. What are your feelings about equity for women in architecture? And what is your firm doing to help get everyone, not just women, but to create an inclusive and empowering environment in that 
particular arena and get everybody on a level playing field. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is sort of baked into our DNA as a women-owned practice. I think that we take mentorship very seriously, and uh, I think there are many of us in the firm who actively take part of mentorship programs, et cetera, and our office has always been at least 50% women in the firm. It really hasn't been by design, but it really just has happened, I think, uh, because of who we are and who has been attracted to work here. And as you say, it isn't just about supporting women in the practice of architecture, but it's also um, seeing those opportunities for, you know, BIPOC and LGBTQ people um, to us to really design architecture that is relevant for today. You have to reflect the community that you're designing for, and that community is very diverse. And so I think we feel very strongly that it's it's sort of all part of the same effort. And it's something that, that we really feel like it's just in how we have approached the whole thing from the beginning. In addition to the mentorship, this is something that we are very intentional about supporting across a number of fronts. So we've been very intentional about our hiring practices and our review practices. We're also very intentional when we're building consultant teams, you know, that we're keeping a Rolodex that includes women-owned firms and BIPOC-led firms and LGBTQ plus firms. And um, this isn't always something that's easy because it, it is something where, you know, everyone, there are still a lot of underrepresented folks who, who very much need to be at the table. But to build really diverse, inclusive teams for these projects and then also talking with our clients about their goals for the construction teams as well, because that's another place where there's just a lot of work to be done. You being firm owners, I think you'll be uniquely um, positioned to answer this question. How do you feel our generational shift, which is huge right now, um, is affecting design and construction as a whole? The energy is really great. And the focus on sustainability kind of broadly defined is great. I think 10 years ago, sustainability meant something very different. You know, now we have much better tools to look at the carbon footprint, both of the embodied carbon and the ongoing carbon. But there's also a sense of urgency around it, and it extends to things like ethical sourcing and eliminating modern-day slavery from the supply chain and to a much broader definition of this future that we're all shaping together. And so, you know, I, I think that energy is a, a really important thing. I, I think one of the things, you know, that it's sort of combining that generational shift with this kind of funny moment uh, where we are in the pandemic that we're finding we just need to be very intentional about training and that being together in person, I, I think we're kind of uh, have a, a renewed appreciation for just what a wonderful thing that is as architects and designers who are collaborating and learning from each other and just 
really wanting to make the most of this moment of being able to work together in a much more seamless way than has consistently been the, the case in, in recent history. We're definitely on the same page, and I, I agree. I would just amplify what Sarah just said. I think the focus on sustainability, also social justice in a way that we are also trying to find ways to bring design to underserved communities and to work on projects that have meaning and are you know meaningful and impactful on communities and neighborhoods that really haven't benefited from good design for too long. So I, I think that this social agenda and really um, focusing not just on the design, but how are you sourcing that design and exactly and how all the, the impacts, the externalities of the act of doing architecture, all of those things are very important today. And certainly our younger designers in the firm are really, really focused on this stuff. And so I think we're, we're really very interested in it. My crystal ball, because I'm psychic, I, I'm not really, but um, I have been in this industry since I was 17 in, in one arena or another. I really feel like in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see more drastic change in the way that we work and how we just mentally approach the work we do and how it affects the people than I think we ever have before in a, a much shorter time. Not that there hasn't been change, but I think that we're going to see we're going to see a lot of really interesting things happen in the in the next ten to twenty years due to that shift and the fact that we all raised our kids different than we were brought up in this world. I know I did. Um, some of the things I put up with when I was younger in this industry, there's no way in heck my kids would, you know. Um, so I'm I'm excited about it. Um, final question. What is your personal world domination statement? And what I mean by that is personal or professional, small or big, what mark do each of you as individuals hope to leave on this world? Well, in a very simple sense, I just feel as though the ultimate goal with the work that we do is to make the world a better place. I mean, design can really change people's lives. And I firmly believe that, that uh, architecture can really affect your life in a very positive way. So in a very sort of straightforward way, I think making the world a better place is what gets me up in the morning for sure. I love that. Sarah? So very similar. And, you know, in a way, it's almost the opposite of a domination statement, you know, because really wanting to leave the world better than I found it and that kind of joint activity of working together to shape the kind of shared future that we want is the ultimate design exercise, but it, it really comes out of that, that dialogue and that sense of community. So. Thank you so much for joining me on Detail today. This was a lovely conversation. I will tell you that I'm dying to get back to New York because I've actually only been to New York a couple of times in my life, but I want to come in and look at this, especially that crazy ceiling with the lights in it, that just jumped right off the page to me. Um, it's just really unique. And I'd love to actually see it in person because we yeah. all know pictures never do it quite the same justice as, yeah. you know, being in the space. Let us know when you're coming and we'll meet you there. We'll give you a tour. We would love to. Absolutely. I would love that. Thank you again, ladies, for being here today. I really appreciate it. <laughs>
Lovely. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.